Well, it's a new year, and we're starting a new sermon series. Uh, it's actually, while it's a new series, in a way it's not new, I'm following up on several requests that we continue where we left off. Just before Christmas, we had gone through a series in the first three chapters of the book of Genesis, and uh, folks said, hey, can we keep going? And so what we're going to do is for the next six weeks, we're going to move into a new series in Genesis chapter 4 through chapter 9. And uh, we're moving into some of the most interesting, intriguing, challenging, and controversial chapters of the Scripture. And so it's going to be fun to preach. It covers the period from we left off at chapter 3, Adam and Eve fell into sin. They were banished from the Garden of Eden. Chapter 4 picks up right there and takes us in chapter 9. We'll go to after the flood of Noah, after the big deluge. By the way, this period of time that is between the fall and before the flood, uh, I'll give you the big $5 theological word for you so you can impress your friends. It's the word antediluvian. Ante meaning before and deluvian meaning flood. So there you go. We won't use it in normal conversation. but Many things are interesting in these chapters. If you go through and we'll get to chapter 5 and there's a genealogy there of Adam's genealogy. You go through that genealogy, you do the math, add up the numbers, and what you discover is we're dealing with a period of over 1,650 years. If there are gaps in the genealogy, which some folks think there are, it's a longer period of time than that. Uh, and in other words, if it's over 1,650 years, it's almost a third of all human history. And yet, it's all in just these six chapters. It's really all we know about it. And much of what we know is mystery and it, it raises questions. You're going to find yourself a little frustrated as we go through this because as we read things, you'll go, wait a minute, what about? And you'll, you'll want to know the answers to things that we don't have. So that's going to be challenging. This after Adam and Eve in chapter 3 or as we move into chapter 4 and they've been banished from the garden, the human population on earth grows from two, just Adam and Eve, to a large population right before the flood. A population which is certainly in the hundreds of thousands, could be in the millions, even possibly the, the billions or even possibly the trillions in those 1,650 years. None of us know because it doesn't say. This antediluvian world, the world before the flood, was likely quite different from the world that we live in after the flood. Many things, one of them is people seem to live long ages. There are people called the Nephilim and people are men of great renown. They are mysteries and uh, we won't solve all these mysteries in their time together. A warning as we come to these chapters. To unbelievers, these chapters are absolute foolishness. When we were in chapters 1 through 3, I mentioned how uh, if you want people to look at you like you are you know, a poached egg, just 
in a room full of average people, mention that you believe the chapters 1 through 3 of Genesis, the creation account, is history. It's what really happened. God created the world in six literal 24-hour days. And most people will go, you are weird. Well, you'll get that same reaction if you come here to these chapters, chapters 4 through 9, and say, I believe these chapters are actual history. People will say, you're a nut. Just last Sunday on NBC's Meet the Press, one of the people there at Meet the Press was making a political statement, a political comment, but they had to drag... Christianity into that and, and said, equated believing in Noah's Ark, chapters 6, 7, 8, 9, is the same thing as believing in fairy tales. And quite frankly, all they, that person was doing was expressing the sentiment of pretty much all the intellectual elite in our country and many of the people at large. But it's not just unbelievers who think that way. There are many who name the name of Christ, call themselves Christians, some even wearing the label of evangelical Christian, who would take these chapters and say, as they would have chapters 1 through 3, that these are allegory. They, are, they have some spiritual truth that they are conveying, but they're not meant to be taken literally. Just so you know... I think that to take a position like that is foolishness because it goes against the Word of God. Luke chapter 3, the Gospel of Luke chapter 3 is a genealogy where Luke is giving for us the genealogy of Christ. And when you go through the genealogy, he goes all the way back to Adam and he treats Adam and Enoch and Methuselah and Noah, all these people as real live people, historical people. Hebrews chapter 11, that great hall of fame of faith, treats Cain and Abel, Enoch and Noah as real historical people. The Apostle Paul writing to the Romans, Romans chapter 5, also writing to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he builds his whole case for why you and all, you and I and all of humanity, we are lost in sin and we need a Savior. And he builds that argument upon Adam being a real person, our ancestor who sinned and plunged the race, the entire human race, into sin and we desperately need a Savior. His whole case falls apart if Adam is not a real person. And if Adam is not a real person and this case falls apart, we don't need a Savior. Jesus was unnecessary. The Apostle John in his little letter, 1 John, Jude writing his little book, both speak of Cain and Cain's sin as history. The Old Testament prophet Isaiah, Jesus, the Apostle Peter, all of them speak of Noah and the ark and the flood Noah's a real person, the flood as real history, the ark that God used to save man and animals. If these chapters, in other words, aren't history, we can't just throw these chapters out and keep the rest of the Bible. We need to throw the whole book out. 
Because if these chapters aren't history, then we cannot trust Isaiah. We cannot trust Jesus. We cannot trust the apostles. They were all either wrong, mistaken, in which case they shouldn't be listened to, or worse, they were deceptive. And so I, our elders in this church, we've chosen to take God's Word at face value. These chapters are what they claim to be, what they purport to be, what Jesus said they were. These are histories of real people. It is our human history, our human story. With that background, let's jump into the text. My, my aim this morning, my plan is to read through the chapter, chapter 4 here of Genesis. So I hope you've got your Bible out. You're going to need to follow along because we're going to go through a lot of stuff. We're going to read through the passage, pausing along the way just to make a few comments. And I'm going to have to try to talk faster than my normal Texan way because I ran out of time in first service. And I really need to get through this. Hopefully we'll be done before supper. And uh, I've got to get through all this stuff because I've got to get through this and get to the really hard stuff that I'm leaving for Aaron next week. Okay? That has been my plan in the last several messages as I leave the hard stuff for Pastor Aaron. So let's jump in here. Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten the man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. We don't know how long it was after Adam and Eve's sin and their banishment from the Garden of Eden until this time when Cain was born. It might have been a very short time. It might have been a number of years. could have been a decade or more. We really don't know. My guess is it was not very long at all. But what we do know is that Eve's hope was very strong that the Deliverer, the one that God promised to send back in chapter 3 and verse 15, this Deliverer, the seed of the woman, as it says there, the Savior that God promised was coming. And she names this firstborn son, she names him Cain. Cain literally means gotten. As she says here, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. In other words, what most commentators think she's saying is, I got it. The promise that He, that he made of the, of the deliverer, the, the rescuer, the Savior, this is Him. And as we're going to see as the story moves on today, there's some disappointment ahead. Then his brother Abel was born, and they grew up. Note right away here that evolutionary anthropology is wrong. What they teach primarily in school and what is put on TV and everything else about human history and anthropology, our early ancestors is wrong. Our early ancestors were not cavemen who ran through the, through the forest foraging for food. What it says is, the Bible says God created people from the start as intelligent and resourceful and creative people. And here we have at the very beginning, not cavemen living in the Stone Age 
foraging and for food to eat, trying to find a few berries. What we have is we have Cain, who is a farmer, and Abel, who's a herder of sheep. Cain has learned from his dad, Adam, who God created, you recall, Genesis chapter 2, to tend the garden. Adam learned gardening from God. And Cain has learned it from dad. He's following in dad's footsteps and they've learned to domesticate sheep and, and Abel is tending sheep. Man didn't evolve from Fred Flintstone. So in some cases, man certainly did through history devolve into living like cavemen. But we didn't involve, evolve from them. Verse 3, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the first of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. So one day Cain and Abel came before the Lord to worship and they bring their offerings. And the Bible tells us here that God accepted Abel's offering, but he rejected Cain's offering. And it raises the question, why? Because the text doesn't say. Theologians love to debate it. And they have all these different reasons, and some of them may or may not be right. I'm not going to get into those this morning. Because the reality is, whatever the reason is, we don't know, but before we get too busy feeling sorry for Cain, thinking that God was just arbitrary, you know, Cain, yeah, that's good. Abel, no. Or he's playing favorites. I like Abel better. You know, the Cain, no, I don't like him. Or that God is holding Cain responsible for some information he doesn't have. Like going in to take a test, but you never were prepped as to what is the test over? And so Abel brings his stuff and Cain brings his and God says, Cain, sorry, buddy, that's not it. Because you see, whatever God was, was expecting and desiring and whatever He rejects Cain for, it is obvious that Cain knows what he should have done. We'll see that in a couple of verses. Verse 7 where God speaks to Cain and He says, If you do well, won't it be accepted? If you do well, if you do right, if you do what you know you ought to do, it'll be right. The problem with Cain and his offering here isn't that he was ignorant. It isn't that God was unfair. The problem here is rebellion. Cain knew what God wanted, but Cain wanted to bring offerings his own way. He wanted to do what he wanted rather than what God wanted. By the way, that's still a problem with people today. Actually, a majority of people think they can come to God in, on their own terms. And, and, you know, I can set the rules. If I do things and I think it's right enough, God will accept that. The Bible says that's not how it is. Since Jesus Christ, there is only one way. It was actually that way in the Old Testament as well. There were prescribed things. But we get to Christ who was the final offering and we have with Jesus Christ the Scripture says, Jesus Himself says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. 
Most people think, well, there's lots of ways. As long as we're sincere, as long as we mean well, it's all good. And God says, no, it's not that way. Never was, even from the very beginning. Cain wanted to come on his terms and God says, no. Now, Cain's response is, he is angry, it says, and his face is fallen. He's depressed. He's hurt. He's ticked. Verse 6, the Lord says to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will not you be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. I notice while Cain is angry, God's response is gentle. He's not harsh. He comes with questions rather than condemnation, even as we saw God do back with Adam when Adam and Eve fell into sin. God came with questions rather than condemnation. So God comes here to to, to Cain. Why are you angry? Why are you depressed? Hey, Cain, this is easily fixed. Do what you know is right to do and you'll be accepted. Everything will be fine. And what plays out here is the same scenario that every one of us as parents have experienced with our kids or every one of us as a kid have experienced with our parents. That moment when the child knows what they're supposed to do. You know, mom and dad, you said, pick up your toys. Sit down. You know, do this, do this. And the child knows because you've made it very clear. And what do they say? Now, what possesses a little two-foot-tall human being to look up at their six-foot-tall dad and say, No! What is it that possesses a human being to look at the all-powerful, all-knowing, Creator God and say, no! The reality is every one of us have done that. And that is what Cain does right here. God says, here's the right way to come to me. Here's what's expected. And Cain says, you know, I think I'm going to do it my own way. And he does it his own way. And God says, Cain, no. And he gets ticked. And God says, Cain, if you do right, everything will be right. And Cain says, no! God offers restoration if Cain obeys. Everything will be fine. But God also gives a warning, if you won't. He says, sin is crouching at the door. The picture is like a a lion or a fearsome monster or something is crouching at the door, ready to pounce and ready to destroy. So it's crouching at the door and its desire is for you. In other words, its desire is to master you. You must rule over it. Cain, you need to get a grip here. Sin is desiring to grab you and destroy you if you let it. God gives a warning. The text moves on. Verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, 
And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. Cain, instead of listening to God's pleading with him to do right, to change his attitude and change his action. Instead, he nurses anger. He nurses resentment. And it festers and it boils to the point where one day he coaxes his brother Abel out to a field to some secluded spot and there he kills him. Possibly it was accidental. I think it was totally premeditated. We don't really know. It doesn't say. Regardless, what happens is he gets his brother alone. He kills him. Abel is dead. There's the first human death and it's a murder. Again, I note how God comes to Abel and it's again, God comes gently with questioning. God obviously doesn't need information. He knows everything. But He's providing opportunity for Cain to say, I can't believe what that just happened. I totally lost it. I killed Abel. That's not the response he gets. God is providing opportunity for repentance, but with Cain there is only sarcasm. There's insolence. There, there's not the slightest bit of sorrow, remorse, repentance. Then God confronts him with the truth. You killed your brother. And God explains the consequences which are going to be severe. Verse 11, And now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You will be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden, and I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. God says, you're a farmer, but because of this murder, your green thumb will no longer work for you. And you're going to spend your life as a fugitive and in restless wandering. Notice still there is not the least inkling of remorse for killing his brother. There's no hint of sadness or mourning. There's just a complaint of how severe the punishment is. And there's worry about his own safety. Somebody might kill me. I notice, by the way, that Cain adds something in his complaint to God. He adds something to his punishment that God didn't say. Did you catch it? Because it's really subtle. You see, Cain says, I will be hidden from your face. God never said that. I actually believe if at this moment Cain had said, you are right, God. I have committed a horrible sin. I have killed my brother. It was wrong. It's evil. God, will You have mercy on me? I honestly believe that at that moment, if he had humbly submitted himself, confessed his guilt, he would have received it. 
For God says, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. God has even rescued murderers. Apostle Paul, case in point, David. The sin of murder was not unforgivable. The problem is that God then as now offers grace through Jesus He offers rescue to anyone who will humble themselves before God, call upon His name, but for the person who is proud, the person who thinks that they're pretty good, the person that has an excuse for everything that happened other than that I sinned, I am wrong, the person who wants to set their own terms and keep going their own way, for that person there is no hope. Then the Lord, verse 15, then the Lord said to him to Cain. Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. God says, Cain, I'll protect you from other people. No one will hurt you. Now, if you're still awake and you haven't fallen asleep, just maybe a question has been raised in your mind right now. Who is Cain afraid of? So far in the text, there have only been four people mentioned, three people other than Cain, and one of them is dead. Who's he worried about? It's a great question. The answer isn't really directly here in the text, but I can surmise several things. First of all, if we get, when we get to the next chapter, next week, chapter 5, verse 4, what we discover is that it says that Adam and Eve had other sons and daughters, other kids besides Cain and Abel. Uh, and by the way, we go back to chapter 2 when God created Adam and Eve. What did He tell them? Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. I imagine if God gave them com- the command to be fruitful and have babies, He also gave them the ability to do that and made them fruitful and they had babies and quite a few of them. And we get a couple of verses down from this. We'll get there in a few minutes. And we discover that Cain has a wife. Who's his wife? Well, it's one of his sisters. And that bothers a lot of people. (gasps) He married his Yeah, it's okay. It's not outlawed. For a long time, not until you get to the law of Moses, Leviticus 18 or 17, I forget which, where it is there that marrying a close relative is forbidden. The reason that it's forbidden is practically, is practicality. Same reason we don't practice it today and it's outlawed in most countries today. Why? Because the gene pool is polluted and what happens is you, you propagate genetic deficiencies. But in the creation, Adam and Eve were created perfect. Sin brought corruption into the line, but it takes a while for it to take root. And it's not only okay and not dangerous to marry your close relative, it's impossible not to when you only have mom and dad, when you start with two people. Okay? It's not a problem. But let me rock your world just a little bit more. Because later on at the end of this chapter, we'll get to where Eve gives birth to another son that she rejoices saying, God has given me the son to replace my son Abel who was killed. And they name him Seth. We'll get there in a little bit. 
So this baby boy was probably born soon after Abel was killed because it's consolation and, and uh, you know, so around nine months to a year after Abel was killed. Well, we get to chapter 5 and again we discover there that when this son, Seth, was born, Adam was 130 years old. Now, if, and I'm making an assumption, but if Cain and Abel were born soon after Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, then they were probably born within not that many years after Adam and Eve were created, 10, 20, 30 years. You realize what that means is that unlike most of the Sunday school pictures, you know, in the books and the flannel graphs and stuff, when Cain kills Abel, they are probably not 20-year-olds. They're 100 years old or 110 or 120. By that time, they probably have married. They probably have kids. Those kids may have had kids. Those kids may have had kids. And at this point in time, when Cain kills Abel, there are likely dozens, if not hundreds, maybe even hundreds of hundreds of people on earth. That's why Cain says, I'm worried that somebody might take revenge and kill me. There's a lot of people who liked Abel. He was a good man. Okay, verse 16. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Arad and Arad fathered Mahomet. Huahel and Mahuahel fathered Methushael and Methushael fathered Lamech. There's a couple of things to notice. Notice again, it's not God who ostracized Cain. It's Cain who goes away and leaves God. It says he went away from the presence of the Lord. Cain makes a choice to walk away from God. Besides, uh, as, as he leaves, he takes his wife, and I think it's very, again, likely and very possible, if not likely, that Cain already has family that he takes along with him. He gets over to wherever he ends up, and there he builds a city. Now, what happens to a person who abandons God, runs away from God, and God has a curse on him? What happens to that person? A whale eats him. That's what happens to Jonah. And that's what we expect to happen to Cain. You know what happens to Cain? He prospers. Sometimes evil people prosper. Does that bother you? It does. Psalm 73. Go read it. Uh, Go look back. We did a sermon on that not too long ago. It happens. Cain here... He prospers. He's got a wife. He's got a family. He builds a city that seemingly grows and prospers. He apparently grows a huge family that populates this city. And so I wonder, did God miss the mark when He laid out Cain's consequences? You're going to be a fugitive and you're going to be a restless wanderer. looks to me like he's a prosperous city dweller. What happened? 
well, I don't have time to dig into this much, but very quickly this. First of all, I think in terms of being a fugitive, I think Cain spent the rest of his life running from his guilty conscience and running from what if. Somebody may come do to me what I did to Abel. He was a mental fugitive, if not a literal one. Secondly, when I think about wanderers, why do people wander? Why do they never settle down? Those who are constantly just, un, you know, they're not satisfied, they're not settled, they're wandering. Why is that? May I say, I think it's typically because they're looking for what they cannot find, which is satisfaction. They're looking for fulfillment. You know, there are restless wanderers all around us. Many of them living homeless while living in a mansion and driving a beamer. They live in a mansion, but they don't feel at home in, this, in their body. They don't feel at home in their life. They are unsatisfied. They are miserable. That's why we can't go hardly a week without hearing of some rich person, some famous person, some celebrity who takes their own life. All the earthly success and earthly stuff doesn't bring contentment. It doesn't bring satisfaction. That's the message of the book of Ecclesiastes of Solomon who tried it all trying to find satisfaction and meaning in life under the sun, cut God out of the picture. And his summation of it all was meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. You take God out of life and life stinks. Cain may have gone and founded a city and from the human perspective, he was a perfect success. But in his heart, he is a failure. It's exactly what our former pastor from years ago, Jim Cain, used to always say. He said, it's the guy who climbs the ladder of success only to get to the top and discover it's leaning against the wrong building. That is living life without God. Cain was a restless wanderer who may have lived in the same house the rest of his days. But he was a wanderer. Cain grows a family, he grows a city, he grows a legacy. And it listed there in that verse and in those verses we just read in the next couple of verses, you pick up six generations of Cain's genealogy. And, and it's not giving you all of his sons and daughters, but just like in the next chapter when we get to Adam's genealogy, it's only giving just a certain line and there's a purpose to it. Here there's a purpose to it. And it's all leading us to one man, his great, 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 great grandson. Let me read verse 19. And Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Adah, the name of the other Zillah. Adah bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain, and he was the forager of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. 
And Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zalah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. And if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And what it lays out for us is the line of Cain. Why in the world is it here? Most of you wonder, why are there genealogies in the Bible at all? And why is there a genealogy here of Cain, the murderer who has run away from God? Because Cain's family line is picturing something for us here. Something that begins here with Cain but carries on through human history to our very day. And that is the development of godless culture, secular society, civilization that has rejected the Creator God. And there are here some commonalities in this line of Cain that follow any society that isn't following God. Two things to note. First thing I notice is that there is cultural advancement. What we see here with this line of Cain is that culture develops marvelously. In, in Lamech's three sons, there is Jabal, who one who develops mobile housing. He builds the first fifth wheel. <laughs> he also domesticates all types of animals. You know, we saw that Abel had developed uh, sheep taking care of sheep. But this guy's developed everything. He's turned it into commerce. He's a leader and, a, and an innovator in mobile housing, in engineering, in agriculture, in commerce. Jabal develops musical instruments. He's an innovator and a leader in music and the arts. Tubal Cain forges bronze and iron. He's a leader of industry and technology. By the way, it's interesting to see here early in human history, they're already forging metals. Again, that is not the way that evolutionary anthropology things, it says that things developed. Godless people did then and they still do now. They create beautiful and extraordinary and marvelous things. Look at godless societies all through history. They have done marvelous things. And that shouldn't surprise us because God made every human in His image and He built into all people this capacity to think and to dream and to explore and to experiment and to create and to build. But in godless society, in godless culture, not only is there cultural advancement, there is the advancement of corruption. And it's depicted here by Lamech himself in three ways, very quickly, we discover that Lamech is the first polygamist recorded in Scripture. It couldn't be more obvious when we were there a few months ago looking in Genesis chapter 2 when God created the first marriage. He created the first man and woman and He set out the pattern for this reason. A man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, not wives. A man and a woman united in a marriage that is exclusive it is one man, one woman for life. That's the pattern that we saw there. This is the first breaking of the pattern that we see. And it is, the, it is simply the tip of the iceberg of what it is that whenever 
man walks away from God, one of the things that happens is there is a corruption of immorality where God's moral law, His law for sexuality and family and marriage is broken and destroyed and tossed aside. Lamech violated what was clearly the pattern because he felt he could. He could get away with it and satisfy himself. Secondly, we see in this passage the escalation and the corruption of violence. Yes, murder had already happened, but he takes it to the extreme. He says that he has murdered a young man. Literally in the Hebrew, the word there is the word for boy or child. He says, a boy hurt me, a boy struck me, and I killed him. And it's shocking. It wasn't self-defense. It wasn't a justifiable homicide. It was outright murder because he was ticked. And that always happens in the corruption of a godless society as violence rises And what goes along with it as well is this astounding arrogance and conceit because he boasts about the murder. And it's not evident in our English here, but but what you have here is a song. As he sings, he goes in and he sings to his wives, Hey wives, come and listen, come and listen. I killed a boy. (laughs) He is stinking proud of it. He is an arrogant, pompous man who not only boasts about it, but he promises that if anybody tries to avenge it, I will get them. Nobody's ever going to touch me. If God was going to avenge Cain seven times, and this is where he not only tries to offend man, he's deliberately mocking God. I'll do better than God. I will avenge myself 70 times seven. It's an arrogant man. Those three characteristics are characteristics of every godless society. Immorality, violence, and conceit, arrogance. Like Cain's line here, it can happen in any age, every age. They can produce technological wonders and beauty, but it will always be marred by those things. Immorality, violence, pride. With that picture of what went on with Cain's line, now the narrative takes us back to Adam and Eve in verse 25. Now Adam knew his wife again and she bore a son and called his name Seth for she said, God has appointed for me offspring instead of Abel for Cain killed him. Eve had hoped that salvation would come through Cain. Obviously that didn't happen. It's been made clear to her and to us as well that it's not going to come through Cain nor through any of his descendants. And it couldn't come from Abel because he's dead. But another son is born and she names him Seth, which means appointment. And it's another declaration of faith that, yes, this is the one appointed. He's going to be the one. She believes, confident it's going to happen. Indeed, while Seth does not turn out to be the promised one, the Savior, what we discover is he is the one through whom the Savior eventually will come. There's so many lessons in this chapter, but I just want to end with two. Two quick lessons. The first, this chapter is designed to set up before us a contrast 
between the line of Cain and the line of Seth. The line of Seth, by the way, is those who follow God and it's the Savior comes through His line. It's designed to put that contrast there and it really goes back to chapter 3 after Adam and Eve fell into sin and God was speaking to the serpent and God says to the serpent, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Between your offspring and her offspring. He says that he, her offspring, will bruise your head. He'll crush you and you're going to bruise his heel. That was the promise of the coming Redeemer. We know that that's Jesus ultimately. But in the meantime, he says that there's a seed, that there's a people. They're going to be those who follow the serpent, who align themselves with the serpent, who reject God and want to follow their own way. And that's going to ultimately be the seed of the serpent. And it ties in in this chapter with the line of Cain. Then there are going to be those who choose to follow God. They're going to be aligned with the the promised one who's going to come through Eve, the the Messiah, the the Redeemer, the Savior. It's going to be those who, who follow God and have faith in God's promise. This is going to be the seed of Seth, the line of Seth, the seed of the woman. And that theme goes on all the rest of the way through the Scripture that there, everyone in the, in the world falls into one of two categories. Those who believe and trust in God and follow Him. Those who reject God and go their own way. And ultimately, they are the seed of Satan. The Bible is clear that there are these two paths. And it starts right here. It's traced through this chapter as the, as the line of Cain and the line of Seth. The question is, there are these two lines. Everyone is in one of these two lines. Where you end up is a matter of choice. Which one will you choose? Will you choose to follow the way of Cain, to go your own way, or will you choose to have faith in God in Jesus Christ and follow Him. That's the first important lesson I see in this chapter. The second important lesson comes to any and all of us who have said, it is my desire to follow God's promised One, to follow Jesus Christ. And the challenge for us today is the same as it was for Adam and Eve and for Seth and all who came in the line of Seth How is it that we are to live as godly people in the middle of a godless world? See, there's one more verse in the chapter. I've got to read it. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. See, I think by the time that Seth has grown up and now he has a son, it's become clear to Adam and Eve and to Seth and to all who are following God that God's promise is good. God will make good on His promise. He's going to send a deliverer, a rescuer, a savior, but it may not happen anytime soon. And in the meantime, it says, at that time, at what time? It's in the days when the line of Cain is growing and the line of Cain is prospering and They're growing bigger and more godless and more evil. 
Because you see, when you, we won't be long in chapters till we get to the time of Noah where God says, I've had it. I'm not going to fight with man forever. This line of Cain is growing in godlessness and in their influence on other people. What are we to do as godly people? Notice their response. At that time, it says, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. It's not that up to that time, I don't think it's not saying that none of them were calling on the name of the Lord. It's like, we better start calling on God. I think it's two things. That word to call upon the Lord can be translated means that to pray, to call upon the Lord in prayer. And if that's what it's saying, it's saying that we, they called upon the Lord in prayer. Recognizing the, the growing godlessness in the world, they began to get more serious about their need to depend on God and call on Him in prayer. Say, God, we need that Savior. They began to get more serious about their walk with Christ. I need to follow Him more intently. Perhaps what that, that's what that is saying. The word call also, however, can be translated very rightly from the Hebrew to proclaim or to preach. And if that's what it's saying, it means that they proclaimed the name of the Lord in those days. The more evil the world began to get around them, the more they began to get busy proclaiming the news, the the Word of God, the truth of God through their lives and through their words. Well, Pastor, if it can be translated either way, which one's right? I don't know. So I'm going to do what I usually do when I don't know. I'm going to say both. Because the reality is, which one of these should we be doing when we're living in the midst of a godless society? Both. And there you have it. Let's pray. Father, this is important stuff. It's stuff that happened in a world long ago They're very different from things around us today in so many ways. A world about which there's so much mystery and what we don't know, and yet in the middle of it all what we see is the heart of man hasn't changed much. The line of Cain is alive and well today, maybe with some in this room. What they need to hear is sin is deadly. God offers forgiveness and restoration in Jesus. And they need to trust Him. For all of us who are trusting and following Christ, how we need to hear this living in a godless world, we need, to, we need to be serious about praying and living for Jesus. And how we need to get busy proclaiming the only hope there is to a lost and dying world. Father, may we take these words and take them to heart and put them into practice. In Jesus' name.